Originally a commemoration of the life of civil rights activist Frederick Douglass, Black History Month is now observed in the United States and Canada each February and in the United Kingdom and Ireland every October. Black History Month celebrates the achievements of a globally marginalized community still fighting for equal representation and opportunity in all areas of life. This includes education. In 1954, the United States Supreme Court ruled separate but equal unconstitutional for American public schools in Brown versus the Board of Education. While this ruling has been celebrated as a pivotal victory for civil rights, it has not endured without challenge. This is Megan Schaefer with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we will be examining issues around education, integration, and segregation through the scholarship of our authors. Our first guest is Zoe Burkholder, Professor of Educational Foundations at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Burkholder is the author of An African American Dilemma, A History of School Integration and Civil Rights in the North, and she spoke with Christine Scalora about segregation in Northern schools. Thank you for joining us today. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, thank you so much for having me. My name is Zoe Burkholder, and I am a historian of education and a professor of educational foundations at Montclair State University in New Jersey. And I am the author of a new book called An African-American Dilemma, A History of School Integration and Civil Rights in the North. And that is the book I'll be talking about today. I have two other uh, books, one which was on Oxford University Press called Color in the Classroom, how American Schools Taught Race from 1900 to 1954, and another second book that's out on University of Chicago Press called Integrations, The Struggle for Racial Equality and Civic Renewal in Public Education. And that book is co-authored with a philosopher of education named Lawrence Blum. So speaking about your latest book, how is your study of the history of school integration different from previous histories on the subject? Well, this book really is different. Obviously, it focuses on the North, and that's where the first kind of substantial um, difference comes in. Most of the scholarship that looks at the history of school desegregation in the United States focuses on um, schools, communities, or even states in the segregated South. And so we have an enormous amount of scholarship that followed this sometimes really terrible and controversial school desegregation battles that stretched on sometimes for decades in the South, um, some of which ended up being rather you know, successful in the end. These schools were desegregated, conditions were improved, families learned to live with or even like the newly desegregated schools. Um, and in some cases, those school systems have since been dismantled and have resegregated since the 1990s. But we know a lot less about the North. And what we do know about the history of school desegregation in the North tends to come from single large cities, places like New York City, Boston, and Chicago um, feature prominently in the scholarship. And again, these are places with incredibly complex political histories and economic histories that meant that school desegregation battles there were really kind of bizarre and long and sometimes terrible as they were in New York City, um, again, with limited amounts of success, as in there's still high levels of racial and socioeconomic segregation in those big northern cities. But again, those individual cities are set apart as kind of unique stories. And it's hard to understand the relationship, for example, between New York City and Boston and Chicago, or to try to put those individual stories into a much bigger, broader context. And so that is what I set out to do in this book, is I really set out to um, kind of change what we know about the history of school desegregation by looking at a bigger geographic area. I wanted to look at the entire North. And I also wanted to look at a larger or kind of longer temporal period by going back to the very beginning of the creation of public schools in this country. And so what I found is um, in the process of kind of broadening the scope, it becomes apparent that there are different factors and features at work, um, especially in the North, 
where racial segregation in the schools was outlawed in the 1880s in most Northern communities. So there's a much, much longer period of time in the North where Black educational activists in particular can use school integration as a strategy to advocate for improving public education. And so you find um, just really different stories. Some of them are connected, some of them are disconnected. And when you put that bigger picture together, new patterns are revealed. And that's kind of the focus of my book are what we, what we see when we take that, that bigger, longer view of school integration. So what does that history that you wrote about reveal about school integration in the North that we didn't know before? Yeah, I think it's almost like the history is being recovered, right? Like it's there, we just didn't quite recognize it or talk about it in, in certainly in academia. And essentially my finding is this, the major focus of my book is trying to understand how African-American communities in the North viewed school integration as a strategy to improve the quality of public education. And what I find is that beginning in the 1840s in New England, school integration is a major component of Black educational activism as different people are using school integration to fight for better schools. And at the same time, there are also Black educational activists in the North who disagree with school integration as the best strategy to improve public education and who instead prefer what um, they refer to as separate schools, which were voluntary all Black schools staffed with Black teachers um, that served the needs of Black students in the community as an option for Black families within a legally desegregated system. So it's not as if these Black families were advocating for segregation. They weren't. They were against segregation. But they preferred, for different reasons in different times and places, to maintain the option of a public school that was run essentially by the Black community. And that tension, the tension between school integrationists and school separatists can be found in the 1840s and it continues forward through time, through the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century, right up through the modern civil rights era and through the 1990s into the present period um, in different forms. So sometimes these schools are called community controlled schools and sometimes they're called Afrocentric schools. Um, and sometimes they're just called all black schools. But the point is the real essential point to these um, separate schools is that they have black faculty and black administrators and that they're seen as more nurturing places that can see to the emotional development of Black children and the academic success of Black youth, essentially producing more high school graduates, more people who are able to go on to college, higher levels of academic success for the Black community. So here's these two different strategies. One is integration, the other is separation. It's very difficult to advocate for both at the same time. And what you end up with are these very fierce and sometimes heated debates within Black communities where people agree. Um, these are friends, neighbors, and families. They agree that public education is important. They agree they want to use schools to improve um, life opportunities for Black families, but they disagree on the strategy about how to make these schools the best possible places. And the final takeaway point, once you recognize that there's this tension between integrationists and separatists, then you can kind of look at, well, one is when and where is one strategy more popular than the other? And this was the really fascinating part is when you put it into this long framework this of the long civil rights movement, all of a sudden you see that there's this early period um, associated with the abolition of slavery and the struggle for emancipation and citizenship where black activists strongly support school integration and then it switches in the early 20th century, much to my surprise. And it's this really fascinating moment we don't know a lot about where the number of all black schools in the North is increasing dramatically between 1900 and 1940. Um, so that there's something like 52 school districts in New Jersey that are running all black schools. And one third of the school districts in Pennsylvania are, are estimated to run all black schools as well as other Northern states as well are expanding the number of these all black schools, mostly because of white racism, like this was basically Jim Crow creeping north, 
But at the same time, the Black community in some different places at some different times was agreeing to accept all Black schooling if they could have Black teachers and Black administrators in those schools. Um, but again, that was like a short-lived uh, phase. And by World War II, Black Northern support for these separate schools decreased dramatically. And you see a mass movement, a grassroots movement percolating from the grassroots up as people advocate once again for school integration, which lasts right up into the Black Power movement when all of a sudden a lot of African-Americans feel that, you know what, school integration has not achieved what we thought it would achieve in terms of actually improving the quality of education for Black students. And as a result, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in urban areas, started demanding community control of public education, by which they meant control over hiring and firing teachers, control over the curriculum, control over disciplinary policies, um, a lot of the features associated with separate schools. Again, this strategy was experimented with for a number of years and finally uh, decided that it that was not an effective strategy either. It didn't work in the, in the kind of contemporary context. And by the mid 1970s, you see a new and kind of much more sophisticated push for school integration in the, in the North. And it's one that I argue draws on many of the strands of black separatism to advocate for a kind of racial mixing, a kind of school integration that brings with it many of the features of separate schools, such as a core relevant number of African-American faculty on staff, a careful critical look at the curriculum to promote and teach Black history and anti-racist education, um, a careful analysis of disciplinary policies and things like tracking policies inside of schools that put kids into you know, AP classes versus regular classes to ensure that all of these different structures within the school are free of racial bias and carefully formatted in a way that past wrongs have been remedied, or at least we're working to remedy those past wrongs so that we're working to remove bias from these educational programs and policies. That's really interesting. So how did Brown versus Board of Education change the struggle for school integration and equality in the North? Yeah, it's such an important ruling in American history. And of course, everyone assumes that Brown versus Board of Education applies to the kind of Jim Crow segregated schools in the South and that it's not relevant in the North, but that turned out not to be true at all. Brown versus Board of Education had a couple of different really important uh, impacts on educational activism in the North. That ruling by the Supreme Court in May of 1954 signaled to African-Americans that the judiciary was ready to get behind um, actually upholding the Constitution and upholding the civil rights of African-Americans in this country. And it had been a long time uh, since we had seen that in this country. And so it really galvanized what was already a pretty robust and substantial Black civil rights movement, one that emerged in the post-World War II era. So by 1954, Brown versus Board of Education is like a spark that's igniting something that's that's really already there, but it's providing a kind of inspiration and a motivation to a lot of African-Americans that the US government is finally going to be upholding civil rights for African-Americans. And that therefore the kinds of activism we've seen for a long time, boycotting for school equality, petitioning for equal funding, um, asking for more integrated schools. Now people are thinking, okay, these strategies have new power. There's a new potency to these requests because now you know the federal government is going to back up our claims. And one of the things that surprised people in the United States in 1954 was that almost immediately, many African-Americans living in the North viewed the Brown versus Board of Education ruling as applying to them because they lived in communities where the schools were so segregated by race. And I mean, these schools, they were like gerrymandered into virtually all black schools 
right next door to virtually all white schools within the same school district. And African-Americans had been complaining about this and fighting about this since the early 1940s. They had a hard time making any significant headway. And they saw the Brown versus Board of Education ruling as applying to schools in the North. I mean, why wouldn't it here? Segregated schools harm, you know, the educational equality and opportunity for African-American students. Therefore, this ruling can be used to advocate for more integrated and equal schools. So we see very quickly Black activists in cities including Trenton, New Jersey, and uh, New York City, and in Boston, citing Brown versus Board of Education as they petition for more integrated schools in their communities. So again, it was a kind of motivational force. It takes a little while until the court cases in the North catch up with that. So it's not until, there's some examples of successful court cases that cite the Brown ruling in the, in the mid 1950s in the North, but really we don't see an expansive court-backed school desegregation movement in the North until the early 1960s. It just takes a little while to roll North, but it does. We've just talked um, a lot about integration related to Brown versus Board. Why did some African-Americans prefer Black schools with Black teachers, and when was support for separate schools uh, in the North the strongest and why? Yeah, so the question of why some families supported or preferred all Black schools with Black teachers in the North really varies according to the context. And I mean, sometimes it just varies according to individual preferences. You know, there wasn't really necessarily always the same answer to that question. On one hand are is a context that African-Americans are living in, especially working class African-Americans, where at various places in various times, they are experiencing such high levels of racism in their everyday life. And in, in some cases, that would be quite evident inside of a schoolhouse. And so if there is a context in which a Black family has children and their children are going to school and they can see with their own eyes, they experience on a daily basis that their child is being mistreated in that school, Certainly, that creates a specific problem that seems to demand a specific remedy that would kind of have people looking for a solution to that problem, right? And if that's your problem, especially let's say you're in a moment and it's the 1920s and you see a kind of revitalization of the Ku Klux Klan, um, there were a lot of openly KKK and pro-segregationist school leaders in the 1920s in communities like New Jersey, Ohio, and Illinois. And so sometimes this racism wasn't muted or hidden, it was explicit. And so Black families would find themselves in a position where they're thinking, you know, this is really problematic. I really don't want my child put into a context where there are adults in power who can potentially cause them either physical harm, which wasn't unheard of, or something else, looking the other way when white students um, started trouble, right, with Black kids or, or started a fight in a school, or um, refusing to recommend Black students for um, advanced or upper level courses, refusing to treat them equally in the classroom. In Newark, New Jersey, and in many communities in the 1940s, it was not uncommon if you had a racially mixed classrooms with both white and Black students, that the Black students were required to sit at the back of the classroom and were not permitted to speak in class. And that was the 1940s in Newark. You know what I mean? So it, the, the context could just be so varied and so kind of bizarre. So many parents just found themselves in a situation where like, that was a problem. And then there was kind of the second question there, which was like, what is school integration for? Depending on how you answer that question really shapes how you feel about the option of separate Black controlled schools. So for many civil rights leaders, many college educated and elite African Americans, for example, school integration was a symbolic ideal. It was representative of democracy, and it could do all these wonderful theoretical things like reduce prejudice, improve race relations, and kind of prove to everyone that African Americans and whites could perform at an equal level intellectually. And that was real, and it was potent, and it was powerful, and it was compelling, and it was important. But 
that logic didn't appeal as much to an individual black parent or family or student who might be considering their question about school integration tended to be a little different. Their question about school integration sounded more like this. Will that racially mixed school improve the quality of education that I have access to? And through the improving of quality, is it going to then create a situation where it's easier for me to do better in school? Like I will go further, I will earn that high school diploma, I will have a chance maybe to go on to higher education. So if school integration could deliver on that promise, and sometimes it could, sometimes the difference was, you know, a really kind of um, low quality two room schoolhouse with no plumbing, you know, in the 1940s compared to a modern bricks elementary school of electricity and plumbing. And you could say like, uh, yes, thank you. I opt for the integrated school, you know, get me out of this separate black school. But if that wasn't necessarily the case, if the facilities were relatively equal um, and it wasn't as clear that the integrated setting would provide a better quality education, or if in some certain circumstances, whites in the community were vehemently opposed to racial mixing in the schools, then again, it would kind of shift people's perspective so that black families were more likely to say, you know what, uh, actually, I'd really rather send my daughter to a school where I know the teachers will treat her with respect and dignity. They will assume she's capable of the highest level academic work. They will see to her needs and understand what she needs to know and learn about as a young Black woman. And that's where she's going to do best in school. And there's a lot of firsthand testimony from Black students who attended these all-Black schools who kind of had an experience like that. They went to integrated schools for a while, and then they ended up in an all-Black school with Black teachers, and they actually preferred that, you know. And so um, there's some really, really interesting stories in the archives that come from the experiences of different students in these very different contexts all over the Northeast. So you identify an ongoing series of debates within Northern communities over the question of whether school integration or separation would be the best strategy to improve the quality of public schools for Black students. Which approach has been more effective? I think school integration has been a more effective approach. The question is really what kind of school integration or what do we mean by school integration? I mean, historically, you could find examples for example, the Little Rock Nine, right, where like sending nine black kids to an all white school counted in 1957 as school integration. We don't count that anymore. So if by school integration, we mean the kind of contemporary, much more robust, deliberately anti-racist approach to school integration, one that places value on all sorts of attributes beyond simply racial mixing of student bodies in a school, but instead digs down and starts looking at equalizing all sorts of programs and opportunities. For example, extracurricular activities, you know, to pick just one thing that we don't often think about when we talk about school integration, lack of access to extracurricular activities, things like sports, music, drama, clubs, debate clubs, right? Like there's all these wonderful, rich, varied extracurricular options in a lot of high schools. But historically, when a school was majority white and dominated by a white community, white teachers, white faculty and administrators, in many cases, it was either difficult or impossible for African-Americans to have equal access to all of those extracurricular activities. You can still see patterns related to that in um, school extracurriculars in the North. But school integration, once we, once we thought more critically about what it meant to be an effectively desegregated school, people started to focus on extracurricular activities and to ensure, for example, that maybe you have something like a cheer squad, right? Well, it turns out if you have a historically majority white school where white kids have dominated the cheer squad, that could lead to a real internal kind of segregation that's gonna continue, right? Like it, it becomes impossible for black girls to make the cheer squad or for Latina girls to make the cheer squad. So now we know that it's going to take careful attention 
from school leaders and from faculty to ensure that all of these extracurriculars are open and available and accessible to all students on an equal basis. And if they're not, that some attention is being paid to that and that it's viewed as a point of concern that needs to be better understood before it's just dismissed. Um, in an even more recent example related to the pandemic, um, we know that in a lot of communities, there was not equal access for students to the kind of technology they needed to do remote and online schooling. And so you have some communities where families had access at home to all sorts of computers, extra bedrooms to put their kids in to do online learning, whatever resources they needed to support their kids high-speed internet that supports multiple people being on Zoom at the same time, right? All of these different kinds of things that wasn't available. That didn't exist in all households. And it took us a long time as a society to even begin to remedy those inequalities and to try to ensure that families that don't have broadband Wi-Fi in their house um, can have it in case their kids' schools are shut down for some period of time and they have to do remote schooling. So we're kind of constantly, I think, finding the places where inequality um, can resurface and we're just kind of missing the fact that there's continued problems that need to be addressed. Do you see any echoes from your work in today's discourse about race and education? Certainly, there's a lot of interest still in school desegregation as a strategy to improve the quality of education for African-American students in the United States. For example, in New York City, over the past three years, there's been this massive interracial student-led movement to try to dismantle the structures in New York City that create such high levels of racial and socioeconomic segregation in the public schools. And it's wonderful to see students taking a lead in that movement. It's not surprising because students have been taking a lead in these kinds of movements since literally the 1840s. But it's been a while since we've seen that kind of activism in the 21st century. So it's, I think, heartening and it is... Um, significant that these students have identified segregation as a source of the problem when you look at educational inequality. And yet also in New York City, we have families who have expressed a strong preference for the option of what is called an Afrocentric school. So the number of Afrocentric schools in New York City, that is schools with a dedicated kind of curriculum and pedagogy that is designed to meet the needs of African-American students, the number of those schools is increasing and parent support and kind of interest in those schools is also increasing. So we see this kind of it, you know, wonderful grassroots student-led movement for school integration and a correlating movement by many families who prefer to support the option of these Afrocentric schools, many of which are charter schools, as a choice that they want. You know, no one's saying like, oh, everybody should attend an Afrocentric school, but for some families, it feels like the right choice and they are happy to pursue it. So clearly, these debates over whether integration or separation provide the best strategy to improve educational equality are still with us and they are still here. And my sense is that the reason these debates are ongoing is precisely because public education in America remains so unequal, especially for African-Americans and other students of color. So we know that that is just a fact. Our schools remain highly segregated by both race and socioeconomic class, and our schools remain profoundly unequal, no matter how you measure it. You could look at the per pupil funding, you could look at the number of AP and advanced level classes, you could look at the quality training and expertise of the teachers in the building, you could look at graduation rates, test scores, college attendance rates, any different kind of set of markers that you look at here, you're gonna see um, really disturbing patterns of inequality where you have one school in one community with large numbers of white and middle class kids where all of those markers of educational attainment are going to be relatively high and sometimes a mile or two away sometimes even less you're going to see another school and it's going to be majority african-american and latinx um, much higher 
percentage of students living below the poverty level and much lower everything, lower student funding, lower levels of um, academic achievement as measured by things like graduation rates and college attendance and test scores. And that should disturb all of us, you know, until we see schools in this country fully equalized, until we invest as a society in the funding that it's going to take to equalize public education for everybody. Uh, then these debates as they are, then this activism in different forms is going to continue from African-American communities and from other communities of color that are experiencing this remarkably unequal public education. Wrapping up, what does the history of school desegregation in the North tell us about the civil rights movement? Well, you know, when you look at the history of school desegregation in the North, what you realize is that in the North, public schools have been a major site of Black organizing, political development, and activism at a really grassroots level, like what we mean when we say grassroots. So a lot of the people that I write about in my book who were taking action to reform their local public school, like it was their elementary school, their middle school, their high school that they went to or that their kids went to or that was in their town. And these folks didn't see themselves necessarily as, you know, bold civil rights activists. And in many cases, they weren't so sure how they felt about the national civil rights movement as it existed at that time. Uh, whether it was the NAACP or the Urban League, clearly many of the people in, in my book that I write about didn't view themselves as doing the work of civil rights activists but they did see a problem in their community. And that, com that problem that they identified violated some kind of core democratic principle that they believed in as Americans. And usually it was illegal discrimination on the basis of race in a public institution, in this case, a school, one that they supported with their tax dollars, one that was just down the road from their house, one that was led in their community by an identifiable group of school leaders, principals, superintendents, school board members. These people weren't far away governors or senators or presidents. They were like, you know, Bob Smith down the road. Like everybody knows these people. And it made public schools vulnerable to this kind of you know, um, modest grassroots activism. So you would see things like students um, participating in a boycott because they wanted something, right? They wanted more school integration. Parents signing petitions to hire a black teacher at the all black school. Ministers working together with community leaders, many of whom were mothers, by the way, taking action in the political arena to modify a public good and service in their community. And what you see is in a lot of cases, what starts in these very small, almost hesitant steps can kind of become something much larger. So people ask for a black teacher and they're told, no, we don't hire black teachers in this town. And, and they get mad, right? And so they go to their neighbors and they say like, hey, this isn't right. And so now you have neighbors banding together and they, they go together and they ask again and the school district says, no, we're not gonna hire a black teacher. And now people are like, wait a second, this just isn't right. And they start looking around for help. Um, they're going to look to other communities nearby, like, well, what happened in that town? What can we learn from that? How can we take a similar action? And in many cases, um, especially after 1940, Black Northerners started writing letters to the NAACP. They're writing letters to Thurgood Marshall. They're asking for help with this effort. And the NAACP wrote back. The NAACP was sending representatives, including Thurgood Marshall, into these small communities that you and I have never heard of and couldn't find on a map. They were small towns in Ohio and in Illinois and in New York and in New Jersey and Connecticut and Massachusetts. And representatives from the NAACP are going into these towns and meeting with Black families and giving them some guidance on their legal rights, some strategies that are effective. You know what I mean? And next thing you know, 
this is the Black civil rights movement in the North. This is the kind of grassroots activism that's going to build together community activism and organizing and build into a much more serious engagement in the political arena. So my point is, if you want to understand the history of the long civil rights movement and the Black civil rights movement in the North, then what you need to do is take a really careful consideration of what is going on in terms of educational activism in public schools. It might be small, but it was significant. And it definitely led to a kind of revolution in uh, Black civil rights organizing, one that continues until this day. This has all been really interesting and informative. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much, Christine. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I enjoyed the conversation very much. And I hope people like the book. Our second guest, Nina M. Yancey, holds a doctorate in politics from the University of Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. She is the author of How the Color Line Bends, The Geography of White Prejudice in Modern America. She spoke with me about the color line and a recent case study from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, did you want to introduce yourself, Nina? Hi, I'm Nina Yancey, and I am the author of the 2022 OUP book, How the Color Line Bends, The Geography of White Prejudice in Modern America. In your scholarship, you study racial identity alongside place and politics, and in your upcoming book, you examine the color line in modern America. How do you explain the color line to those unfamiliar with the concept? The color line is an old idea related to the Black experience in the U.S. And it refers largely to what it probably sounds like, the racial divide or the idea of a line that divides Black and white Americans. And to reference the definition I use in my book, I draw from sociologist Mary Patillo, who writes that the color line is a metaphor for mechanisms and practices that maintain racial inequality, as well as a more literal description of the many places and systems in which blacks are on one side and whites are on another of a visible or invisible line. And the reason I like this definition is because it captures the fact that the color line is figurative and very tangible, which is a fit for my interest in both prejudice and place. And by prejudice, I particularly focus on white Americans' opinions on issues related to race, which are often affected by negative feelings toward or stereotypes of Black Americans. And when I say place, I'm interested in how white Americans' prejudicial opinions might vary according to the places where they live and the racial and economic features of those places. So in my work, I see both prejudice and place as different manifestations of the color line. Could you expand on what you mean by the relationship between prejudice and place? Sure. So, you know, I just talked about prejudice and place as, as these manifestations of the color line, and I'm interested in how the material color line really influences the metaphorical one. So how local geography shapes white opinion. And in using the language of the color line, I'm really trying to foreground the reality that the color line marks a power differential between black and white Americans. So whether we're talking about disparities in income or wealth or economic opportunity or political representation or voting rights or protection from violence, white Americans on average are in a more powerful position, which is why white Americans on average will feel inclined to defend the color line. And why all of this talk about power matters is that my approach to studying geography and politics generally falls under what's called the racial threat hypothesis, which is a well-established body of literature, but one that also I think can sometimes minimize power dynamics. And so the general finding is that as a minority population grows in size, so does the relative threat that minority would present to a nearby majority in terms of competition for economic resources or political power. So simply put, a larger Black population poses a greater threat to nearby whites, leading to more racially hostile actions and attitudes among the white population. But a key entry point for my book is the question, well, from whose perspective is the Black population threatening? Even the language of racial threat rhetorically positions Black bodies as a source of threat, 
and white viewers as victims, which makes it easy to forget how black Americans have been construed as threatening in the eyes of white Americans when white Americans often have the power to decide what is seen and how. So because of all of this, a central argument throughout the book is that when we're studying prejudice in place or how the racial or economic features of a given place might amplify prejudice, it really matters to think about which side of the color line a local context is being viewed from and being explicit about white Americans' vantage point from a relatively privileged position in the U.S. racial hierarchy. Are color lines a uniquely American phenomena? A good question, because of course the underlying concept of a racial divide is by no means uniquely American. We see so many examples of racial divides in both attitudes and outcomes around the world. But the term color line does have a very specific history related to the Black experience. Most people probably associate the term with Du Bois writing the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. The term was actually used by Frederick Douglass decades before, but that just shows you the depth of its history in Black American thought. And so this just shows the, the resonance to the term color line that is hard to separate from Black Americans' history of racial oppression. The concept could travel absolutely to other racial divides, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere. I think it's just important to situate the study of those other divides within the histories and systems of power that created and sustained them. Your book analyzes a proposed city within the state of Louisiana. In 2019, suburban residents living within a previously unincorporated region southeast of Baton Rouge voted to incorporate as a new city, St. George. Supporters of St. George argue that its creation would give residents greater control over the community's taxes and subsequently grant its residents the ability to form a new and improved school district for their children. However, St. George has drawn substantial criticism from opponents who suggest that this is a thinly veiled attempt to further segregate schools. What does your research suggest? It's not my place to conjecture at the intent of the St. George organizers, but to look at their stated goal, which has always been to create a new independent school district in Southeast East Baton Rouge Parish, and Parish is the county unit in Louisiana. And so to look at that goal and think of it in context of its likely impact and also the history that it descends from. And if we do that, then it becomes clear that St. George would create a disproportionately white and wealthy city and school district in a parish that is largely black and has a very deep history of battles over school segregation. So to just bring to life the possible impact, the first point is that it would be a sizable city. It'd be about 86,000 people, making it the fifth largest city in Louisiana. It also differs from the demographics of the parish as a whole, and that the area is only about 12% Black and has a mean income that's about $30,000 a year higher than the rest of the parish. So you have this sizable place that we know skews towards the white and the more affluent. And the consequences of that would be significant for both the parish school system and for the city of Baton Rouge. So, you know, the school system is projected to lose about 15% of its revenue, thousands of students who would move to St. George schools, and that move would lower the white student population of East Baton Rouge parish schools from 11% to about 8%. At the same time, as you know, tax dollars that currently flow to the city of Baton Rouge, because there's a joint city parish structure, the unincorporated areas taxes go to the general fund that the city controls. That tax money would also go to the city of St. George, taking revenue away from the city, which is itself majority black. So just looking at this present day data, you can see why there are obvious racial and class dimensions to the critiques that opponents make of St. George. But it gets even more interesting if you take account of the fact that Baton Rouge is home to one of the longest running desegregation lawsuits in the country. So the lawsuit was brought first by the federal government in 1956, didn't officially end until they reached a settlement in 2003, but some federal oversight remained until around 2007, which is not very long ago. So this is a major part of Baton Rouge's recent history. And while that's a long period, a really critical moment came in the 1980s when Baton Rouge had, at this point, made pretty token attempts to desegregate only small voluntary efforts. And in light of this minuscule progress, 
when a new judge is appointed to the case in 1981, he implements a mandatory busing order. And now busing orders were being put in place across the US at this time. It was not a very popular strategy, but the idea was to achieve a better racial balance in schools by moving white and black students to schools other than the ones to which they might have been zoned to attend previously, and they would travel by bus. And in the 80s, about four in five white Americans were opposed to this strategy, this idea of moving children to different schools by bus, even as about four in five Americans said, well, yes, black and white children should go to the same schools. So this is not a strategy that's preferred by many. And I should say it was also a strategy that was seen as disruptive in black communities in Baton Rouge in particular, the number of people who will explain what it meant to not be able to go to the same school that their family had gone to for generations, or how many of the best black teachers were reassigned to historically white schools. But at the same time, the biggest negative reaction was certainly among white residents of the Baton Rouge area. And what we see is that as these stricter desegregation measures are put in place, there is a flood of white students and white families out of the parish school system. So whereas in 1980, the system was about 60% white. By the time the lawsuit ends in the early 2000s, it is only about 11% white, 81% black. And this coincides with this time of population shift and geographic shift outside of the school system too, related to the growth of the suburbs, the expansion of highways, migration away from central cities across the country. And so what this leaves us with is, a stage set for a movement like St. George with a different concentration of a white and more affluent population in the southeast part of the parish and a school system that is super majority black and largely low income. The final piece of context that sets the stage for St. George is that after the lawsuit ends, there's an immediate flurry of activity that sees several parts of the parish school system break away and form independent school districts primarily done by existing cities in East Baton Rouge Parish who, once the federal oversight is lifted, organized to form their own systems, again, separate from that majority Black low-income Baton Rouge Parish school district. So this provides direct inspiration to St. George, and I think just really hammers home the point that the effort descends from a very long and fraught history related to racial desegregation in Baton Rouge schools, so irrespective of intent, it can't be separated from that lineage. Seven years prior, the same supporters of St. George sought to create a new school district, the Southeast Community School District. This proposal failed twice. How was St. George able to succeed where the Southeast Community School District failed? So one point to make is that St. George also failed in its first attempt in 2015, and it was in its second attempt to incorporate in a 2019 vote that it passed. And another important point is that the incorporation is still being held up in courts by a lawsuit brought by the mayor of Baton Rouge and some private citizens on the grounds that it would be such a harmful move to the greater Baton Rouge area. So whether St. George is ultimately successful remains to be seen, but it's still a good question. And it has two parts. One is why the city succeeded versus just creating a school district. It's fair to say that's a roundabout way to get your own school district. And then another question is, well, what did it take for the city incorporation effort to succeed? So on the first part of that, two attempts had been made around 2012-2013 to create the independent school district. And these were attempts that had to get through the state legislature and ultimately failed, failed to fully establish the district and get funding for it. And there was active organizing against the Southeast Community School District at the time because of the same concept, the idea of moving students and resources away from the larger parish school system. But one thing that the organizers say they were told in terms of why they didn't get through was that they weren't a city, whereas the previous independent school districts that left East Baton Rouge schools had been in these handful of small cities, or in one case, a discrete community that had incorporated as a city on the journey to creating its own school district. And so this gives direct inspiration to the organizers to try to incorporate as a city. And that is paired with the fact that Louisiana has flexible rules when it comes to incorporation. Only 25% of voters 
have to sign a petition to bring it to a vote. So 25% of people who live in a given unincorporated area. And then once the motion is brought to a vote, it only needs a simple majority to pass. St. George also raised the stakes because of the size of the area. And it wasn't an area that had been coherent before in that most people who lived in Southeast East Baton Rouge Parish would have just told you they lived in Baton Rouge. People couldn't really tell you where the city line was. So this raises some really interesting questions of who gets to decide. Is it the people who live within a given boundary or the people who would be affected by the decision? And that's relevant to the second question of what it ultimately took for the vote to pass once the effort decided incorporation was the route. And so in the first effort, the one that culminated in the 2015 vote, they'd proposed including all of that unincorporated area in the Southeast. And organizers would explicitly emphasize that they proposed including the whole area and they would often point to one lower income black community that fell within this unincorporated area in the Southeast. But so after this 2015 effort failed, they then proposed a smaller area. And here, you know, they went away from that strategy, which they, again, described as trying to avoid a perception of being motivated by race or economics. But they went right to where they knew their support would be strongest. They drew a smaller boundary. The original proposal would have been over 100,000 people. This one is over 80,000 people. It's slightly wider. It's slightly more affluent. And again, because of those relatively lax rules for incorporation, were successful. It was a narrow margin, but they did ultimately win 54% of the vote in 2019. And since then have been on this journey to establishing the incorporation officially and then establishing the district. What is the white perspective and how does it relate to your analysis of St. George? St. George offers a really interesting case study of cityhood movements and of school desegregation. And I've explored it in some detail here because I know we're exploring in this episode issues related to race and education. But the larger focus of my book is on white public opinion and how it's shaped by local experiences of race and class. This goes back to the color line and the relationship between prejudice and place that we talked about earlier. So why St. George and Baton Rouge more generally offered a valuable backdrop is that for one, St. George offered a very high profile issue that brought to the surface reflections about race and class and perceptions of local geography that might not have been accessible otherwise. We could literally see fights over the color line playing out in Baton Rouge. Second, totally by chance, I conducted field work in Baton Rouge in 2016, which happened to coincide with a period of racial unrest following the death of Alton Sterling, a black man, at the hands of police. And that too brought many reflections to the surface and made it a theoretically rich background for research. And then finally, Baton Rouge has a sizable Black presence. It's a place where residents in general are more aware of and comfortable engaging on race. And so it's in my study of Baton Rouge and St. George and the ways in which education is a form in which fights over the color line have played out in both the color line's physical and metaphorical manifestations. It's in that study that I identify what I call a white perspective. So with all that context in mind, what I did in Baton Rouge was speak to a broad sample of residents both white and black and ranging from fierce supporters of St. George to very strong opponents of St. George. And I conducted research, which we call interpretive, focused on people's interpretations of the world. So not just the literal content of conversation, but the subjective world of meaning someone inhabits and might seek to defend, right? Not just what they propose to include in the original incorporation of St. George and including that whole unincorporated area, but what they mean by that, right? What they're trying to achieve by pointing out this particular low-income Black community that falls within the boundaries. And so in my analysis, I bring this interpretive lens and I look at my conversations with residents of Baton Rouge. And what I find is surprising similarities and how white residents understand local racialized issues despite being deeply divided over St. George. And I conceptualize the similarity as evidence of a shared lens through which white residents view the world. And that's what I call the white perspective, a shared viewpoint or vantage point on local racial politics, even as there is diversity among individual white viewers. And so to bring that to life, this shared perspective 
specifically comes out in the form of common discursive practices or collections of themes that come out when talking to people. And within each collection of themes, what would happen is people would say different things. So that's why it's the collection of themes. People would express different opinions on the St. George movement's motivations or its impact, different thoughts about education and schools and what's right. But within each practice, while saying different things, white residents would often do similar work to uphold or justify the racial order in Baton Rouge. So they would deny or express doubt and claim is about racism. They would depoliticize racist category. They would legitimize white needs and interests and often deprioritize or leave invisible black needs and interests. And they would on the whole defend the status quo. And again, they could do those things while arguing for or against St. George. And one major inspiration for this argument about a shared white perspective that I, that I think kind of helps make it tangible is feminist standpoint theory, which has highlighted that subjugated groups often have the best insight into the workings of power. So simply put, if you want to understand how capitalism exploits, go talk to a worker. If you want to understand misogyny, go talk to someone who identifies as a woman. And looking at it from the other direction, there will be inevitable limitations to what someone in a dominant position will see from their perspective. And if we bring that back to Baton Rouge, in the process of engaging in similar discursive practices, white residents collectively would often make little mention of the possibility that theirs was only one of many experiences of the racial divide in Baton Rouge and suggest a lack of awareness of how their whiteness might limit their perspective. And that starkly contrasts with the Black residents I encountered who are acutely aware that theirs is only one of many experiences of race in the area. And so that's the basic point here. It's not about who's a good or bad person. It's not, in this case, about being racist or non-racist. It's the point that no vision is neutral. Everything is seen from somewhere. And this becomes abundantly clear in my study of opinion on St. George and Baton Rouge, becomes clear in a study of this contentious case involving race and education. And it's with this insight in hand that I go back to the study of racial threat, and that I go back to the question of geography and racial politics, research that's typically conducted using survey data and looking across multiple settings, which is what I do later in the book. And I come back to that and I ask, okay, based on what we've learned in Baton Rouge in the case of St. George, how does that change our understanding of how white viewers in other contexts or thinking about other topics might also produce attitudes that are influenced by a whiteness of perspective and a racialized experiences of their local surroundings. In conclusion, what is the threat of the black middle class? The threat of the black middle class is a concept I explore in one of the quantitative applications that the book offers of my findings in Baton Rouge. And here is an example of you know, revisiting the relationship between prejudice and place and asking what changes if we're explicit about the subjective racial lens through which many white Americans will view the world. So I move here from the issue of education to a different one, and I explore the possible threat white viewers might see in the Black middle class, which is a population different from that which is most commonly considered as threatening. You know, low-income Black populations have most typically been stigmatized in relation to things like poverty and violence. So in chapter five of my book, I explore white opinion in U.S. metros. So again, here looking at places beyond just Baton Rouge. And I use a data set that spans the 2007 through 2009 recession. And what I find is that white perceptions of a rising black middle class lead to greater opposition to affirmative action in employment. And to break that down, it's the perception that black people are catching up to white people measured as seeing black people as getting richer and white people as poorer. That perception leads to greater opposition to a policy area like affirmative action, which explicitly seeks to advance Black status. And there are two reasons why the white perspective, as I explore it related to St. George, is relevant. The first is that I show the subjectivity of white survey respondents' perceptions in showing that they were most likely to perceive a rising Black middle class in places that were hardest hit by the recession. So I pair survey data with census data and with local economic data and show that it's where unemployment rose the most that white people were most likely to think 
black people were getting richer and white people were getting poorer. And this happens even as we know that's not what was really going on. Unemployment was already higher and increased more for black communities. And so this is the subjective perception at a time of local economic stress. And it goes on to predict lower support for affirmative action. So even if you just think richer black Americans don't need affirmative action as much, it's still the case that a white resident is likely to be perceiving a richer black population on subjective or erroneous grounds. And then the second reason my findings in Baton Rouge and around the white perspective are relevant is that this threat response, this effect related to the threat of the black middle class holds across the spectrum of white racial attitudes, meaning that it holds even when controlling for whether a white survey respondent has more racially tolerant or more racially hostile attitudes. Similar to seeing similarities among white residents of Baton Rouge who were both opposed to and supportive of St. George. And it supports the idea of a viewpoint that is conditioned by white Americans shared place at the top of a racial hierarchy and a shared interest in defending that place. And so ultimately this is interesting because we often think of the black middle class as most likely to be perceived positively by white viewers at least compared to lower income black communities. But here we see the black middle class and the white gaze also being construed as threatening, particularly fueled by subjective and racialized experiences of a white individual's geographic context. Thank you so much for your time, Nina. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. We want to thank our guest, Zoe Burkholder, author of An African-American Dilemma, and Nina M. Yancey, author of How the Color Line Bends, for joining us on today's episode. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for an excerpt from our guest publications, along with a suggested reading list that provides even more context for understanding the prevailing themes of integration and segregation in education. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 69 was produced by Stephen Filippi, Christine Scalora, and me, Megan Schaefer. Thank you for listening.